Chapter Seventeen of the Jewel of Seven Stars. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. The Jewel of Seven Stars by Bram Stoker. Chapter Seventeen: Doubts and Fears. We learn of great things by little experiences. The history of ages is but an indefinite repetition of the history of ours. The record of a soul is but a multiple of the story of a moment. The recording angel writes in the great book in no rainbow tints. His pen is dipped in no colors but light and darkness. For the eye of infinite wisdom there is no need of shading. All things, all thoughts, all emotions, all experiences, all doubts and hopes and fears, all intentions, all wishes seen down to the lower strata of their concrete and multitudinous elements are finally resolved into direct opposites. Did any human being wish for the epitome of a life wherein were gathered and grouped all the experiences that a child of Adam could have, the history, fully and frankly written, of my own mind during the next forty-eight hours, would afford him all that could be wanted. And the recorder could have wrought as usual in sunlight and shadow, which may be taken to represent the final expressions of heaven and hell. For in the highest heaven is faith, and doubt hangs over the yawning blackness of hell. There were, of course, times of sunshine in those two days, moments when in the realization of margaret's sweetness and her love for me all doubts were dissipated like morning mist before the sun but the balance of the time and an overwhelming balance it was gloom hung over me like a pall the hour in whose coming i had acquiesced was approaching so quickly and was already so near that the sense of finality was bearing upon me the issue was perhaps life or death to any of us, but for this we were all prepared. Margaret and I were one as to the risk. The question of the moral aspect of the case, which involved the religious belief in which I had been reared, was not one to trouble me, for the issues and the causes that lay behind them were not within my power even to comprehend. The doubt of the success of the great experiment was such a doubt as exists in all enterprises which have great possibilities. To me, whose life was passed in a series of intellectual struggles, this form of doubt was a stimulus rather than a deterrent. What, then, was it that made for me a trouble which became an anguish when my thoughts dwelt long on it? I was beginning to doubt Margaret. What it was that I doubted, I knew not. It was not her love, or her honor, or her truth, or her kindness, or her zeal. What then was it? It was herself. Margaret was changing. At times during the past few days I had hardly known her as the same girl whom I had met at the picnic, and whose vigils I had shared in the sick room of her father. Then, even in her moments of greatest sorrow or fright or anxiety, she was all life and thought and keenness. Now she was generally distrait, and at times in a sort of negative condition, as though her mind, her very being, 
was not present. At such moments she would have full possession of observation and memory. She would know and remember all that was going on, and had gone on around her, but her coming back to her old self had to me something the sensation of a new person coming into the room. Up to the time of leaving London I had been content whenever she was present. I had over me that delicious sense of security which comes with the consciousness that love is mutual. But now doubt had taken its place. I never knew whether the personality present was my Margaret, the old Margaret whom I had loved at the first glance, or the other new Margaret whom I hardly understood and whose intellectual aloofness made an impalpable barrier between us. Sometimes she would become, as it were, awake all at once. At such times, though she would say to me sweet and pleasant things which she had often said before, she would seem most unlike herself. It was almost as if she was speaking parrot-like, or at dictation of one who could read words or acts, but not thoughts. After one or two experiences of this kind, my own doubting began to make a barrier, for I could not speak with the ease and freedom which were usual to me. And so, hour by hour, we drifted apart. Were it not for the few odd moments when the old Margaret was back with me, full of her charm, I do not know what would have happened. As it was, each such moment gave me a fresh start and kept my love from changing. I would have given the world for a confidant, but this was impossible. How could I speak a doubt of Margaret to anyone, even her father? How could I speak a doubt to Margaret, when Margaret herself was the theme? I could only endure and hope. And of the two, the endurance was the lesser pain. I think that Margaret must have, at times, felt that there was some cloud between us, for towards the end of the first day she began to shun me a little, or perhaps it was that she had become more diffident than usual about me. Hitherto she had sought every opportunity of being with me, just as I had tried to be with her, so that now any avoidance, one or the other, made a new pain to us both. On this day the household seemed very still. Each one of us was about his own work or occupied with his own thoughts. We only met at meal times, and then, though we talked, all seemed more or less preoccupied. There was not in the house even the stir of the routine of service. The precaution of Mr. Trelawney in having three rooms prepared for each of us had rendered servants unnecessary. The dining-room was solidly prepared with cooked provisions for several days. Towards evening I went out by myself for a stroll. I had looked for Margaret to ask her to come with me, but when I found her she was in one of her apathetic moods, and the charm of her presence seemed lost to me. Angry with myself, but unable to quell my own spirit of discontent, I went out alone over the rocky headland. On the cliff, with the wide expanse of wonderful sea before me, and no sound but the dash of waves below and the harsh screams of the seagulls above, my thoughts ran free. 
do what I would, they returned continuously to one subject, the solving of the doubt that was upon me. Here in the solitude, amid the wide circle of nature's force and strife, my mind began to work truly. Unconsciously I found myself asking a question which I would not allow myself to answer. At last the persistence of a mind working truly prevailed. I found myself face to face with my doubt. The habit of my life began to assert itself, and I analyzed the evidence before me. It was so startling that I had to force myself into obedience to logical effort. My starting place was this. Margaret was changed. In what way and by what means? Was it her character, or her mind, or her nature? For her physical appearance remained the same. I began to group all that I had ever heard of her, beginning at her birth. It was strange at the very first. She had been, according to Corbeck's statement, born of a dead mother during the time that her father and his friend were in a trance in the tomb at Aswan. That trance was presumably affected by a woman, a woman mummied, yet preserving, as we had every reason to believe, from after-experience, an astral body subject to a free will and an active intelligence. With that astral body, space ceased to exist. The vast distance between London and Aswan became as naught, and whatever power of necromancy the sorceress had might have been exercised over the dead mother, and possibly the dead child. The dead child? Was it possible that the child was dead and was made alive again? Whence then came the animating spirit, the soul? logic was pointing the way to me now with a vengeance. If the Egyptian belief was true for Egyptians, then the Ka of the dead queen and her Ku could animate what she might choose. In such case Margaret would not be an individual at all, but simply a phase of Queen Terra herself, an astral body obedient to her will. Here I revolted against logic. Every fiber of my being resented such a conclusion. How could I believe that there was no Margaret at all, but just an animated image used by the double of a woman of forty centuries ago to its own ends? Somehow the outlook was brighter to me now, despite the new doubts. At least I had Margaret. Back swung the logical pendulum again. The child, then, was not dead. If so, had the sorceress had anything to do with her birth at all? It was evident, so I took it again from Corbeck, that there was a strange likeness between Margaret and the pictures of Queen Terra. How could this be? It could not be any birthmark reproducing what had been in the mother's mind, for Mrs. Trelawney had never seen the pictures. Nay, even her father had not seen them till he had found his way into the tomb only a few days before her birth. This phase I could not get rid of so easily as the last. The fibers of my being remained quiet. There remained to me the horror of doubt. And even then, so strange is the mind of man, doubt itself took a concrete image, a vast and impenetrable gloom, 
through which flickered irregularly and spasmodically tiny points of evanescent light which seemed to quicken the darkness into a positive existence. The remaining possibility of relations between Margaret and the mummied queen was that in some occult way the sorceress had power to change places with the other. This view of things could not be so lightly thrown aside. There were too many suspicious circumstances to warrant this, now that my attention was fixed on it and my intelligence recognized the possibility. Hereupon there began to come into my mind all the strange, incomprehensible matters which had whirled through our lives in the last few days. At first they all crowded in upon me in a jumbled mass. But again the habit of mind of my working life prevailed, and they took order. I found it now easier to control myself, for there was something to grasp, some work to be done, though it was of a sorry kind, for it was or might be antagonistic to Margaret. But Margaret was herself at stake. I was thinking of her and fighting for her, and yet if I were to work in the dark I might be even harmful to her. My first weapon in her defense was truth. I must know and understand. I might then be able to act. Certainly I could not act beneficently without a just conception and recognition of the facts. Arranged in order, these were as follows. Firstly, the strange likeness of Queen Terra to Margaret, who had been born in another country a thousand miles away, where her mother could not possibly have had even a passing knowledge of her appearance. Secondly, the disappearance of Van Hine's book when I had read up to the description of the star ruby. Thirdly, the finding of the lamps in the boudoir. Tara, with her astral body, could have unlocked the door of Corbeck's room in the hotel and have locked it again after her exit with the lamps. She could in the same way have opened the window and put the lamps in the boudoir. It need not have been that Margaret in her own person should have had any hand in this, but, but it was at least strange. Fourthly, here the suspicions of the detective and the doctor came back to me with renewed force, and with a larger understanding. Fifthly, there were the occasions on which Margaret foretold with accuracy the coming occasions of quietude as though she had some conviction or knowledge of the intentions of the astral-bodied queen. Sixthly, there was her suggestion of the finding of the ruby which her father had lost. As I thought now afresh over this episode in the light of suspicion in which her own powers were involved, the only conclusion I could come to was, always supposing that the theory of the queen's astral power was correct, that Queen Terra, being anxious that all should go well in the movement from London to Kilian, had in her own way taken the jewel from Mr. Trelawney's pocket-book, finding it of some use in her supernatural guardianship of the journey. Then, in some mysterious way, she had, through Margaret, made the suggestion of its loss and finding. Seventhly, and lastly, was the strange dual existence which Margaret seemed of late to be leading, 
and which in some way seemed a consequence or corollary of all that had gone before. The dual existence. This was indeed the conclusion which overcame all difficulties and reconciled opposites. If indeed Margaret were not in all ways a free agent, but could be compelled to speak or act as she might be instructed, or if her whole being could be changed for another without the possibility of anyone noticing the doing of it, then all things were possible. All would depend on the spirit of the individuality by which she could be so compelled. If this individuality were just and kind and clean, all might be well. But if not... The thought was too awful for words. I ground my teeth with futile rage as the ideas of horrible possibilities swept through me. Up to this morning Margaret's lapses into her new self had been few and hardly noticeable, save when once or twice her attitude towards myself had been marked by a bearing strange to me. But today the contrary was the case, and the change presaged badly. It might be that that other individuality was of the lower, not the better sort. Now that I thought of it, I had reason to fear. In the history of the mummy, from the time of Van Hine's breaking into the tomb, the record of deaths that we knew of, presumably affected by her will and agency, was a startling one. The Arab who had stolen the hand from the mummy, and the one who had taken it from his body. The Arab chief who had tried to steal the jewel from Van Hine, and whose throat bore the marks of seven fingers. The two men found dead on the first night of Trelawney's taking away the sarcophagus, and the three on the return to the tomb. The Arab who had opened the secret serdab. Nine dead men, one of them slain manifestly by the queen's own hand. And beyond this again, the several savage attacks on Mr. Trelawney in his own room, in which, aided by her familiar, she had tried to open the safe and to extract the talisman jewel. His device of fastening the key to his wrist by a steel bangle, though successful in the end, had well-nigh cost him his life. If then the queen, intent on her resurrection under her own conditions, had, so to speak, waded to it through blood, what might she not do were her purpose thwarted? What terrible step might she not take to effect her wishes? Nay, what were her wishes? What was her ultimate purpose? As yet we had had only Margaret's statement of them, given in all the glorious enthusiasm of her lofty soul. In her record there was no expression of love to be sought or found. All we knew for certain was that she had set before her the object of resurrection, and that in it the North, which she had manifestly loved, was to have a special part. But that the resurrection was to be accomplished in the lonely tomb in the Valley of the Sorcerer was apparent. All preparations had been carefully made for accomplishment from within, and for her ultimate exit in her new and living form. The sarcophagus was unlidded. The oil jars, though hermetically sealed, were to be easily opened by hand, 
and in them provision was made for shrinkage through a vast period of time. Even flint and steel were provided for the production of flame. The mummy pit was left open in violation of usage, and beside the stone door on the cliff side was fixed an imperishable chain by which she might in safety descend to earth. But as to what her after-intentions were, we had no clue. If it was that she meant to begin life again as a humble individual, there was something so noble in the thought that it even warmed my heart to her and turned my wishes to her success. The very idea seemed to endorse Margaret's magnificent tribute to her purpose, and helped to calm my troubled spirit. Then and there, with this feeling strong upon me, I determined to warn Margaret and her father of dire possibilities, and to await, as well content as I could in my ignorance, the development of things over which I had no power. I returned to the house in a different frame of mind to that in which I had left it, and was enchanted to find Margaret, the old Margaret, waiting for me. After dinner, when I was alone for a time with the father and daughter, I opened the subject, though with considerable hesitation. Would it not be well to take every possible precaution, in case the Queen may not wish what we are doing with regard to what may occur before the experiment, and at or after her waking, if it comes off? Margaret's answer came back quickly so quickly that I was convinced she must have had it ready for someone. But she does approve. Surely it cannot be otherwise. Father is doing, with all his brains and all his energy and all his great courage, just exactly what the great queen had arranged. But, I answered, that can hardly be. All that she arranged was in a tomb high up in a rock, in a desert solitude, shut away from the world by every conceivable means. She seems to have depended on this isolation to ensure against accident. Surely, here in another country and age, with quite different conditions, she may in her anxiety make mistakes and treat any of you, of us, as she did those others in times gone past. Nine men that we know of have been slain by her own hand or by her instigation. She can be remorseless if she will. It did not strike me till afterwards when I was thinking over this conversation how thoroughly I had accepted the living and conscious condition of Queen Terra as a fact. Before I spoke I had feared I might offend Mr. Trelawney, but to my pleasant surprise he smiled quite genially as he answered me. My dear fellow, in a way you are quite right. The Queen did undoubtedly intend isolation, and, all told, it would be best that her experiment should be made as she arranged it. But just think, that became impossible when once the Dutch explorer had broken into her tomb. That was not my doing. I am innocent of it though it was the cause of my setting out to rediscover the sepulchre. Mind, I do not say for a moment that I would not have done just the same as Van Hyn. I went into the tomb from curiosity, and I took away what I did, being fired with the zeal of acquisitiveness which animates the collector. 
But remember also that at this time I did not know of the Queen's intention of resurrection. I had no idea of the completeness of her preparations. All that came long afterwards. But when it did come, I have done all that I could to carry out her wishes to the full. My only fear is that I may have misinterpreted some of her cryptic instructions, or have omitted or overlooked something. But of this I am certain. I have left undone nothing that I can imagine right to be done, and I have done nothing that I know of to clash with Queen Terra's arrangement. I want her great experiment to succeed. To this end I have not spared labor or time or money or myself. I have endured hardship and braved danger. All my brains, all my knowledge and learning, such as they are, all my endeavors such as they can be, have been, are, and shall be devoted to this end till we either win or lose the great stake that we play for. The great stake, I repeated, the resurrection of the woman and the woman's life, the proof that resurrection can be accomplished by magical powers, by scientific knowledge, or by use of some force which at present the world does not know? Then Mr. Trelawney spoke out the hopes of his heart, which up to now he had indicated rather than expressed. Once or twice I had heard Corbeck speak of the fiery energy of his youth, but save for the noble words of Margaret when she had spoken of Queen Terra's hope, which, coming from his daughter, made possible a belief that her power was in some sense due to heredity, I had seen no marked sign of it. But now his words, sweeping before them like a torrent all antagonistic thought, gave me a new idea of the man. A woman's life. What is a woman's life in the scale with what we hope for? Why, we are risking already a woman's life the dearest life to me in all the world, and that grows more dear with every hour that passes. We are risking as well the lives of four men, yours and my own, as well as those two others who have been won to our confidence. The proof that resurrection can be accomplished. That is much. A marvelous thing in this age of science and the skepticism that knowledge makes but life and resurrection are themselves but items in what may be won by the accomplishment of this great experiment. Imagine what it will be for the world of thought, the true world of human progress, the veritable road to the stars, the Aitur ad Astra of the ancients, if there can come back to us out of the unknown past one who can yield to us the lore stored in the great library of Alexandria and lost in its consuming flames. Not only history can be set right, and the teachings of science made veritable from their beginnings, but we can be placed on the road to the knowledge of lost arts, lost learning, lost sciences, so that our feet may tread on the indicated path to their ultimate and complete restoration. Why, this woman can tell us what the world was like before what is called the Flood, can give us the origin of that vast astounding myth, can set the mind back to the consideration of things which to us now seem primeval 
but which were old stories before the days of the patriarchs. But this is not the end. No, not even the beginning. If the story of this woman be all that we think, which some of us most firmly believe, if her powers and the restoration of them prove to be what we expect, why, then we may yet achieve a knowledge beyond what our age has ever known, beyond what is believed today possible for the children of men. If indeed this resurrection can be accomplished, how can we doubt the old knowledge, the old magic, the old belief? And if this be so, we must take it that the Ka of this great and learned queen has won secrets of more than mortal worth from her surroundings amongst the stars. This woman in her life voluntarily went down living to the grave, and came back again, as we learn from the records in her tomb. She chose to die her mortal death whilst young, so that as her resurrection in another age, beyond a trance of countless magnitude, she might emerge from her tomb in all the fullness and splendor of her youth and power. Already we have evidence that, though her body slept in patience through those many centuries, her intelligence never passed away, that her resolution never flagged, that her will remained supreme, and, most important of all, that her memory was unimpaired. Oh, what possibilities are there in the coming of such a being into our midst! One whose history began before the concrete teaching of our Bible, whose experiences were antecedent to the formulation of the gods of Greece, who can link together the old and the new, earth and heaven, and yield to the known worlds of thought and physical existence the mystery of the unknown, of the old world and its youth and of worlds beyond our ken. He paused, almost overcome. Margaret had taken his hand when he spoke of her being so dear to him, and held it hard. As he spoke, she continued to hold it. But there came over her face that change which I had so often seen of late, that mysterious veiling of her own personality which gave me the subtle sense of separation from her. In his impassioned vehemence her father did not notice, but when he stopped she seemed all at once to be herself again. In her glorious eyes came the added brightness of unshed tears, and with a gesture of passionate love and admiration she stooped and kissed her father's hand. Then, turning to me, she too spoke. Malcolm, you have spoken of the deaths that came from the poor queen, or rather that justly came from meddling with her arrangements and thwarting her purpose. Do you not think that, in putting it as you have done, you have been unjust? Who would not have done just as she did? Remember, she was fighting for her life. Aye, and for more than her life. For life and love and all the glorious possibilities of that dim future in the unknown world of the North which had such enchanting hopes for her. Do you not think that she, with all the learning of her time, and with all the great and resistless force of her mighty nature, had hopes of spreading in a wider way the lofty aspirations of her soul? 
that she hoped to bring to the conquering of unknown worlds and using to the advantage of her people all that she had won from a sleep and death and time, all of which might and could have been frustrated by the ruthless hand of an assassin or a thief. Were it you, in such case, would you not struggle by all means to achieve the object of your life and hope, whose possibilities grew and grew in the passing of those endless years? Can you think that that active brain was at rest during all those weary centuries, whilst her free soul was flitting from world to world amongst the boundless regions of the stars? Had these stars in their myriad and varied life no lessons for her, as they have had for us since we followed the glorious path which she and her people marked for us, when they sent their winged imaginations circling amongst the lamps of the night? Here she paused. She too was overcome, and the welling tears ran down her cheeks. I was myself more moved than I can say. This was indeed my Margaret, and in the consciousness of her presence my heart leapt. Out of my happiness came boldness, and I dared to say now what I had feared would be impossible, something which would call the attention of Mr. Trelawney to what I imagined was the dual existence of his daughter. As I took Margaret's hand in mine and kissed it, I said to her father, why, sir, she couldn't speak more eloquently if the very spirit of Queen Terra was with her to animate her and suggest thoughts. Mr. Trelawney's answer simply overwhelmed me with surprise. It manifested to me that he too had gone through just such a process of thought as my own. And what if it was, if it is? I know well that the spirit of her mother is within her. If in addition there be the spirit of that great and wondrous queen, then she would be no less dear to me, but doubly dear. Do not have fear for her, Malcolm Ross. At least have no more fear than you may have for the rest of us. Margaret took up the theme, speaking so quickly that her words seemed a continuation of her father's, rather than an interruption of them. Have no special fear for me, Malcolm. Queen Terra knows and will offer us no harm. I know it. I know it as surely as I am lost in the depth of my own love for you." There was something in her voice so strange to me that I looked quickly into her eyes. They were bright as ever, but veiled to my seeing the inward thought behind them as are the eyes of a caged lion. Then the two other men came in, and the subject changed. End of chapter 17 Recording by Roger Moline